0: Greetings, students, as always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People since 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, The Gilded Age Northeast, Part 2. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak, and turn to the first slide, Working Conditions. Last time, I described how big business was booming and alluded to the fact that working conditions were plummeting. Around 1900, the average work week was 59 hours long, and many steelworkers worked 12-hour days, 7 days a week, and many seamstresses worked 12-hour days, 6 days a week. Most employees didn't get vacation time, sick leave, or workers' compensation. In addition, there was no government safety net as the United States was the only industrialized nation in the world without workers' compensation. And wages were usually very low. So you made barely any money. And if you got injured, you'd lose your job, not be able to take care of your family, and the government had no mechanisms like Social Security to help you. Around 1900, the average American worker made $400 to $500 a year, but it was estimated that it took $600 in order to sustain a reasonable level of comfort. So most workers lived in poverty. Some of you may ask, why didn't they just make more money, like working two jobs? Well, there's not enough time, since you're working seven days a week. Many families needed everyone, women and children, in order to work just to survive. As a result, child labor became more common, especially in textile or cloth factories. Around 1900, 20% of U.S. kids between the ages of 10 to 15 worked for wages, and workers understood the system was against them, and thus they would need to bargain collectively in order to obtain humane working conditions. Before I continue, just look at that picture alone. Look at those young faces. My stepson is that age and I am thankful he does not have to work in a coal mine for a living. Please turn to the next slide entitled, Unions. I want to show you three examples of how workers united in unions to protect themselves from oppressive business practices. The first group is the Knights of Labor. They welcomed all wage earners as members, except lawyers, bankers, liquor dealers, and professional gamblers. They appealed to workers across gender and racial lines, though the Chinese were barred from the organization because the Knights believed that Chinese laborers were used to keep wages for American workers artificially low. This union included both skilled and unskilled workers of every race, sex, and creed, and they wanted to end wage work and get all workers to work in co-ops that they owned and would manage themselves. And by 1886, their membership peaked with over 700,000 members. However, as we will see, various economic crises and unfair practices by the government and businesses will destroy this union. Another union that you should know is the American Federation of Labor, the AF of L, formed in 1886. Membership in this union was only given to skilled workers from different trade unions, like many unions consisting of workers of a single trade, like carpenters or brakemen. This was because many believed that unskilled workers were too tough to organize because they could easily be replaced. This organization was led for many years by Samuel Gompers, and he was dedicated to pure and simple unionism, and the goal was to fight within the system because it was there to stay. By the eve of the First World War in 1914, the AFFL had 2 million members, and by 1920, it rose to 4 million. The last union I want you to know is the International Workers of the World, the IWW, founded in 1905. This union wanted to mobilize all workers into one big union, and they scorned politics and preferred direct action, like sabotaging the workplace. As a result of their tactics, they called themselves the Wobblies, and they were organized by Eugene V. Debs. Debs and his organization believed in socialism, but spoke it, quote, with an American accent and he would tell everyone that he was, quote, not an immigrant bomb thrower, end quote. Debs said that industrial capitalism was undemocratic and un-American because it deprived man of his freedom and his ability to own property, which is a very Jeffersonian view. Debs proposed a system in which the public, represented by the government, would own the vital industries, and government would run them to meet the public need, Not for profit. Unions often organize strikes in order to protest their poor treatment, so turn to the next slide entitled Strikes. If you recall, strikes were a common tactic to oppose the oppression of workers, and you should recall the Great Strike of 1877, which led to a massive backlash in the North and ultimately helped destroy Reconstruction, since Northerners were now worried about their own domestic affairs rather than the oppression of Southern African Americans. Working conditions continued to decline, so in 1886 there was a wave of strikes across the United States where almost 500,000 workers joined in the Great Southwest Railroad Strike of 1886 and the May Day Strike of 1886. The 200,000 workers engaged in the Great Railroad Strike were angered at Jay Gould in his refusal to lessen the workday and pay fair wages. The May Day strike of 350,000 workers occurred across the Midwest and merely asked for an eight-hour workday. So, as you can see, these are not radical anarchists. All they are demanding is quote eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, and eight hours for what we will. Despite these small demands. Bloodshed ensued. In April of that year, the Southwest Railroad strike was rocked when police fired into a crowd, killing seven workers. The state militia was then called out, the Texas Rangers patrolled across their state, and the strikers were ultimately suppressed. The May Day strike, which began on May 1st, was in part done out of solidarity with the Southwestern strike, but also to protest their own treatment. On May 3rd, in Chicago, workers demonstrated at the McCormick Reaper plant as part of a nationwide strike in support of the eight-hour workday. This peaceful protest was disrupted by the authorities and police fired on the strikers, killing four in cold blood, injuring another 70, and arresting hundreds. In response to this violation of the First Amendment's guarantee for the freedom of assembly, On May 4th, another peaceful rally occurred at Haymarket Square in Chicago in order to protest police brutality, which as we all know is a common theme in American history. At the end of this rally, a bomb exploded and killed eight policemen. The bomber was never identified, but four anarchists were ultimately executed. This led to what is called a Red Scare across the country in an attempt to hunt down anarchists and find bombs. In the process, the labor movement was blamed, and the Knights of Labor in particular took a big hit, losing 90% of their membership by the end of the decade. Attempts to organize workers continued to suffer, but the strike still went on. Like at Homestead, Pennsylvania in 1892, where Pinkerton Detectives, which is a private security company, attempted to break a strike of steel workers. This resulted in a running gun battle where workers attempted to defend themselves against these men. As a result, the state militia was called out, the union was crushed, and Andrew Carnegie thwarted efforts at union organization for the next decade. The last strike I want you to be aware of is the Ludlow Massacre of 1914 in Colorado. Workers out west were often kept in company towns which were surrounded by barbed wire and guarded by armed men. There were often restrictions about where you could go and which stores you could go and buy things from. As a result, the local mine workers began to strike, and all they wanted was merely a recognition of their union, the United Mine Workers of America, compensation for all the work they did which was often withheld, the enforcement of the eight-hour workday, the right to use any store they wanted, and the enforcement of safety standards, which was already law. Instead, on April 20th, guardsmen and the state militia used machine guns on the protesters, and 20 people were killed, including 12 children, when the force burned the tent colony and assassinated the Union leader. It was one of the worst labor massacres in the history of strikes in America. The point is that there is a long continuity in American history where protesting to stand up to power and oppression results in the use of the state in private businesses killing protesters to stop any attempt at reforming unfair working conditions. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Immigration. Naturally, immigration had been going on since the very first European settlers arrived in the Americas. From the 17th to the 18th centuries, It was mostly Europeans and West Africans who came to the Americas. But from 1815 to 1914, there was a great era of European immigration to the United States, as well as Latinos and Chinese. Often when we describe America, we think of it as a melting pot, meaning a mixture of many different cultures blended or melted together. However, perhaps a salad bowl or mosaic may be more accurate, as specific groups of people often concentrate in particular areas. From 1880 to 1920, 23 million immigrants came to the United States, and from 1900 to 1914, the average was 1 million people per year. Now before 1890, most immigrants came from North or Western Europe, meaning that they were Germans, British, Irish, Scottish, Scandinavians, etc. But from the 1890s to 1914, most came from new regions like South and Eastern Europe, containing the groups of Italians, Russians, Jews, Greeks, Slavs, and Slovaks. The fact that many Southern and Eastern Europeans were Jewish or Catholics led to many problems with nativist Americans. In addition, The Chinese and the Japanese, who were mostly on the West Coast, also suffered from oppression. Many of these immigrants congregated in the urban centers, and in 1890, four out of every five New Yorkers was foreign-born, and New York City had twice as many Irish as Dublin, Ireland. So we now have to ask ourselves, why did so many immigrants come when they did? So turn to the next slide, Coming to America. Immigration is often caused by what we call push-and-pull factors. A pull factor, meaning someone wanting to come over, could be an economic opportunity, as coming to the United States was referred to as passing through the golden door. However, many immigrants rarely got rich. There's an old Italian saying, quote, I came to America because I heard the streets were paved with gold. When I got here, I found out three things. First, the streets weren't paved with gold. Second, they weren't paved at all. And third, I was expected to pave them. End quote. As I mentioned, there were also a number of push factors, like persecution. An example of this is the state-sanctioned violence in Russia against Jewish individuals. And this occurred all over Eastern Europe and Southern Europe as people attempted to flee from these unfavorable conditions. Now, immigrants usually traveled by steamship, and a trip across the Atlantic took about one week, In a Pacific trip anywhere between two to three weeks. And usually immigrants were cramped into steerage compartments in the bowels of the ship, so it wasn't exactly a pleasure cruise. On the East Coast, many immigrants traveled through Ellis Island in New York City Harbor, where they underwent medical and competency tests. And if you click on the title of the slide, you will see a short clip from the fantastic movie Godfather II, which depicts the scene. Okay, did you watch it? Well, hopefully you've all seen that movie before. Anyway, on the West Coast, immigrants went through Angel Island in San Francisco Bay. But wherever they entered from, there were many commonalities. Life for immigrants was very difficult. You had to learn a new language and a new culture, which may be strange. You had to find a job and housing. But the biggest single issue was the intense anti-immigrant fervor that gripped many white Anglo-Saxon Protestant Americans. So please turn to the next slide, nativism. Nativism is the discrimination of immigrants from native-born Americans, and there is a long, Consistent history of this in the United States. During the Gilded Age, it was certainly not an era that valued multiculturalism. And nativism was based on racism, fear of losing one's jobs to immigrants, or other explanations. Now, you may not know this, but prior to the Civil War, there was a political party called the Know Nothings. And they were called this because it was a secret organization where members always said, I know nothing. When asked when and where a meeting was held. And they became so powerful in the 1850s that they actually ended up running many governments in New England because of so much anti immigrant sentiment at the time. This tradition continued, and in 1887, the American Protective Association was founded. And within six years, it had over half a million members who were mostly white, middle class Protestants from the Midwest and Northeast. Now, it is interesting to note that many nativists believed that some immigrants were better than the others. For instance, British, German, or Scandinavians, who were Protestant, were seen as better than those from Southern and Eastern Europe, and of course, Catholics and Jews. As we've already described, in 1882, Congress passed the Chinese Exclusion Act, which banned Chinese immigration for 10 years, though it was extended and made permanent all the way until 1943. Another example of anti-Asian nativism is in 1907, where Theodore Roosevelt signed the Gentleman's Agreement with Japan, which said they would restrict the amount of immigrants from their country to the United States, and it also said that Japanese immigrants would be denied U.S. citizenship. In the 1920s, anti-immigrant quotas were made against Latinos, Catholics, and Jews, and many nativists believed that America's democratic principles were based on Protestantism, so they saw other religions as a threat. The point is that there is a long and unfortunate continuity in American history where racism and anti-immigration are used as a political football in order to distract Americans from the fact that they are being played by politicians, elite businessmen, and the media. Please advance to the next slide entitled Living Conditions. So, where did most immigrants settle? Well, as I alluded to earlier, most went to the cities where they could find work and housing was cheaper. But also remember that many African Americans were migrating north in this era. Combined, this led to the expansion of the cities, which we call urbanization. In 1920, for the first time in our history, more Americans lived in urban areas than in rural areas, and as a result, this caused overcrowding and pollution. Now, in this era, there's no such thing as city planning. There's no logical block or grid system to organize and develop uh, the expansion of these cities. And what does that mean? Well, there's no regulations on housing, or living standards, or building materials. Inner-city immigrants were packed into shabby housing called tenements, where two to three families would live in an apartment that was only suitable for one family. Tenements were packed so closely together that fire was a very real danger. There was extremely poor ventilation, which led to the spread of diseases like diphtheria and measles and tuberculosis. An entire building of several tenements might share a single latrine in a yard or alley, and that will lead to a lot of fecal matter in your backyards. Horses were also still used in cities as the primary mode of transportation, and the average horse dropped an average of 20 pounds of feces in a gallon of urine per day on these streets. So you were basically walking back and forth from work, ankle deep, in fecal matter. That's not very pleasant. In addition, cities were filled with factory smoke Garbage lined the streets, and there was expansive crime. And does anyone know how you actually went to the bathroom in this era? You either had a latrine in the backyard, which I said, or you went in a bucket in your room, which you dumped out your window, maybe onto the head of a passerby. The point is that these are horrible urban conditions. Many people got sick as a result. And it wasn't until people finally publicized these conditions that reform efforts were inaugurated. One Danish immigrant, Jacob Rice, worked as a police reporter in New York City, and he got to see some of the war slums. So in 1890, he published the book How the Other Half Lives. It was a photographic book showing the poor side of cities, especially the immigrants in the tenements. To alleviate this issue some cities embarked on the construction of settlement houses, which were community centers and slum areas. These settlement houses provided classes on such subjects as English, health, painting, and even offered some educational courses. Many nurses were sent to the slums and established daycares and kindergartens for the kids of working-class women, and they were usually run by middle-class college-educated women. The most famous of the settlement houses was Hull House in Chicago, founded by Jane Addams in 1889. She saved hundreds, if not thousands, of lives, educated thousands, stood up to corruption, but also believed that immigrants should assimilate into American culture. She ended up winning the Nobel Peace Prize in 1931, and when she died in 1935, She was the most revered woman in the entire United States. And she is a perfect example of how one person can change the world if they're willing to stand up for their principles and fight for justice. Well, that is all I have for you for today. I hope you're all staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.